Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. We'll pick back up midstream of the discourse on page 124. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so last week we ended with question 262. How can the body of Christ and his true blood be present at the same time in those countless places where the Lord's Supper is celebrated and be received by us with the mouth? The most simple answer is, of course, because he's God. (laughs) He can do whatever he wants to do. But then also, as we talked about the Christology, on account of the union between the divine and human natures, what is true of the divine can also be made true of the human. That is, the powers of the divine nature interpenetrate and use that of the human nature. To put that once more again a little bit more simply, when Jesus has five loaves of bread and two fish, very finite amount, does he have any problem multiplying that as much as is needed? No problem at all. Does it violate the nature of bread? (laughs) Nor does it violate the nature of his body when he simply makes his body present uh, for all Christians to eat and to drink, his body and his blood. Okay, then 263 But scripture testifies that Christ, according to his human nature, was in all things except sin, made like unto his brethren, Hebrews 2.17. And it is not the natural and essential character of a true human body to be present at the same time and at once in many places. Answer, it is without all doubt very true that Christ, according to his human nature, was made like unto his brethren in all things. But certainly, if according to that nature he is capable of nothing beyond or more than the extent of the natural or essential properties of a human body, surely his blood also will not be able to cleanse us from our sins. 1 John 1, 7. I mean, any more than, since I simply have a human nature, can my blood cleanse you of your sins? No. At best, if I were to die on the cross, I could make atonement for my own sins. Now, that's not true. I couldn't. A sin has an infinite kind of weight because it's a rebellion against the infinite one. But hypothetically, if I could make atonement, I could make atonement for myself and none other. So, Christ's blood cleanses us of our sins precisely because it is God's blood, as the scriptures put it. And that then is both precious, infinitely precious, and infinitely powerful to cleanse us from our sins. But it is, while it is God's blood and divine blood, it is RH-typable. It is human blood. And that blood is made to cleanse sins 
1 John 1, 7. Okay, continue with Chemnitz. Nor will we have redemption and righteousness in his blood, uh, Colossians and Romans. Nor shall we be healed with his stripes, 1 Peter 2. And in short, his passion and death will also not be satisfaction for our sins. One must therefore believe both, even as Scripture attests both. First, that Christ, according to the human nature, was in all things like unto his brethren. Second, that because of the personal union with the divine nature, his human nature is so exalted above all things that can be named, Ephesians 1, that to him, also according to the human nature, is given all power in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, and that all things are given into his hand, John 3 and John 13, and all things are made subject under his feet, Ephesians 1. Therefore, since he said, this is my body, this is my blood, though the natural and essential attributes of a human body cannot do this, yet he can, to whom is given all power in heaven and on earth, also according to the human nature. And just as an aside, this is a a most important exegetical and interpretive point as well, that where Christ is, is talking about having all authority or being seated at the right hand of God, it's like, well, what didn't he have that before? Wasn't he seated at the right hand of God before? To which the answer is yes, but not as a human being. That's the radicality of what's being said, the radical nature of what's being said, is that now a human being is enthroned with God, and a human being has been made Lord over angels and humans, indeed over all creation. Okay, so far so good. So question 264 then, but doesn't this teaching conflict with the articles of our faith? He ascended into heaven from whence he shall come Etc. Answer. No. For Christ, indeed, in his body, according to the true and natural way and particular character of his body, visibly and locally ascended to heaven, even as he shall return thence in the same way to judgment. So Acts 1 and Matthew 24. We're thinking here of the ascension, where Jesus rises bodily, visibly, And we are told in the scriptures that he will return in the same way, bodily, visibly. Chemnitz continues, but that he did not know or have at his disposal another heavenly mode by which he might be present in the supper in his body and blood. This specific thing, the articles cited above, do not declare, but rather teach and confirm the opposite. For the articles of our faith declare that Christ ascended to heaven in his body, not like little birds leaving the surface of the earth, sit on top of the tree, nor like Elias, Elijah, was taken up into heaven, but in such a way that he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, the right hand of God is not a circumscribed place or a particular seat or region in heaven by which Christ is limited, circumscribed, and enclosed. But scripture calls it the right hand of the majesty and power of God which fills all things. Psalm 139. 
So what Chemnitz's point is here, and maybe he'll make it even more clear, if you were to do like a topical study on the right hand of God, what you're going to find is that it doesn't have a specific longitude and latitude in a geography called heaven. What you're going to find by doing that study through the scriptures is you're going to find that wherever God is working to create, especially create anew and save, it's his right hand. And so now Christ embodies the fullness. There's no other name under heaven by which a man may be saved. All of God's new creative and salvific work are done in and through Christ and none other. That's the proper biblical understanding of the right hand of God and that to which Christ as true God and true man ascends. I mean, interesting, even at even in Revelation where you get a really concrete vision of the throne room of heaven, you don't find a throne to the right hand of the Father's throne with the Lamb sitting on that throne. So even that kind of concrete vision mitigates this idea that, well, Christ has been raised to the right hand of God. He can't move. Well, can he take a bathroom break? No. Can he get up and visit some of the other angels? No. He's at the right hand of the Father. Can he move over to the left? No. Anything beyond a 90-degree angle, you see, will be inviolate. I mean, this is absurd, right? So this idea that he's somehow bound at the right hand of the Father is what ascended has come to mean in uh, you know, many evangelical reformed circles. So again, um, Chemnitz reminding us, Scripture calls it the right hand of the majesty and power of God which fills all things, Psalm 139, and to which Christ is exalted according to the human nature above every principality, power, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Isn't that a tantalizing line? So that all things are subject to him also according to the human nature. And then you can look at the slew of quotations there from the scriptures. But that's the shock, that's the amazing moment of the ascension, is that a human being rules over this age and the age to come. Yes, sir. Oh, hold on one second. Can we get you the microphone? Just for the sake of those following along online so they're not lost. Thank you. Two thoughts come to mind. is omnipresence and the word of God is living. Mm -hmm. The omnipresence part is God is everywhere at once. So since God took on human flesh, is it, is it okay to think that his, he could be everywhere at once? Yeah. I Physically? Mean, I mean, he could be over on some planet and then here at the same time? I don't know. That's insofar as he fills all in all, I mean, this, this rationale is really kind of used as an attempted reductio ad absurdum to try to make the, the biblical position, the Lutheran position, look silly and then be abandoned. Right. A, a little bit, I mean, while we would still affirm that, um, a more sane and sober approach would be what you see in the Bible are different descriptions given by Jesus of how and in what ways he's present. Okay. So, for example, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So is he with us always? Yes. Is he with us as just spirit Jesus? Body Jesus is up in heaven, spirit Jesus is... No, that's two Jesuses. Okay? So he's with us always as the incarnate one. All right, but then he also says, and he's speaking obviously of Christians, lo, I am with you always, his disciples. Then he also says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. And I, I mean, a smart aleck response would be like, well, yeah, you already said where, you know, lo, you're with us always. So whether there's two or three or whatever, even if there was just one, you're there. But why does he say two or three? It's a different mode or way in which he wants to be present, you see? So then what you see described in the scriptures are these different ways in which Jesus speaks of his presence. So while he says, lo, I am with you always, he doesn't make himself accessible to have his body eaten or his blood drank by his Christians, drunk by his Christians, whatever the right word is. So we've got another distinction there then, don't we? Where in the sacramental mode or means or way of presence, he gives us his body and blood to eat and to drink. So anyway, you take all this biblical data, and then we've just described that shorthand as modes of presence. So Christ tells us in his word different ways in which he's present. Um, The unifying factor is him as the incarnate one is present, but the diversity or the discontinuity are the ways in which he's present. So he is with me always as a disciple, but where two or three are gathered in his name, he comes in the divine service way. You see, he comes gathered to a church, however small that church may be. Um, And then he, in a similar vein, fills all in all. And this is the most incomprehensible to us, but it's also the most obviously divine. And um, so does that kind of help shed some light? Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense to me. And the second thing I was thinking was the Word of God is living, right, mm-hmm. the Bible says. Mm-hmm. So he disperses that or distributes that throughout the universe. Yeah. So why, if he's the living Word and he gives us his body and blood, mm-hmm. he can also disperse that, mm-hmm. that same idea. I don't know if that Yeah, sense yeah, I mean, it makes some sense to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Pastor. Okay, so we left off, it looks like, maybe five lines from the bottom of 125. Should he, so since all things are subject to him according to his human nature, should he then not be able to do with his body and blood (laughs) what he declared and ordained? All things are under my authority except my own body and blood. Uh, So there's an absurdity Obviously, he can do what he wants with all things, including his own body and blood. So should he then not be able to do with his body and blood what he declared and ordained in express and clear words in his testament? In fact, the articles cited above completely attest the true and essential presence of the body and blood of Christ in the supper according to the natural and essential essential attributes of a human body. Yet since he declares Yet since he declares it who ascended into heaven with his body in such a way that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and power of God the Father Almighty, 
It would be horrible blasphemy either to say or think that this is impossible for him and cannot be in any way. And on the basis of this consideration, one can see the nature of the sect of the sacramentarians. Right. So the sacramentarians, again, those who deny um, the reality of the sacraments and want to see them just as mere symbols. And Chemnitz's point here is that you really have to have a wild audacity to look Jesus in the eye and say, what you say you can do, you can't do. Because why? Because my philosophy. <laughs> because my philosophical principles. Because of my rationalizations. Wild. Okay. 265 is the body of Christ to be offered to God the Heavenly Father as a sacrifice in the Lord's Supper. So now pivoting away from the sacramentarians, what will be the Reformed and the Evangelicals of our day, uh, to the Roman Catholics and the so-called sacrifice of the Mass. Here's the answer. Christ offered himself to the Father once. That's the teaching of Hebrews 7 and Ephesians 5. But in his supper, he did not institute an offering or sacrifice in which we offer something to God, but a sacrament in which he wants to offer, give, and bestow on us the highest and most precious treasure, namely his body and blood, with all the benefits obtained by their giving and shedding. Why can Lutherans be so certain of this? Because of the words of institution, Jesus takes bread and offers it to God, or takes bread and says, this is my body, and offers it to God. No. Jesus takes bread, gives thanks to God, and then blesses it and says to his disciples, take, eat. So he gives his body and his blood. So it's a vertical from Christ from God down to man. It's a sacrament, not a sacrifice from man up to God. And the words of institution themselves show that. Okay? Yes, sir. Is there a point in the Roman Catholic practice of Holy Communion in which this is displayed, this belief? that they do during the communion or before they distribute it? Is it when, they, when they raise it up, is that what they're reflecting? Mm, mm, that's a good question. Yes, so you've got words within the liturgy itself, the Roman liturgy itself, indicating the sacrifice. That's the key. And then in that context, the elevation of the host becomes a symbolism of offering it. So my second question, follow-up, yeah. is we do that in the Lutheran Church, we hold it up. Mm-hmm. Could that not be confusing to some as being seen, mm-hmm. as believing what the Roman Catholics believe? Yeah, and it's, it's a good question. And it's a, you've discovered that I'm a crypto-Romanist. No. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, in fact, um, Luther and the Lutherans dealt with this because in the context where it's talking about the sacrifice of the Mass throughout the liturgy, and then that action is done by the priest, the context shows that that's the action. 
All right. And then when our context, so Luther has taken out of in his liturgical reforms, he kept everything that didn't obscure the gospel and removed those elements that talked about our sacrifice or our meriting or our doing. So from that time forward, the Deutsche Messe, the German Mass, um, from that time forward, it was left to the discretion of the pastor or of the superintendent, the district president of a given region, whether that practice was to be done. But the logic was that it could now be done because the context shows forth a different reality than the sacrifice. So more to the point, in our context, it's not as though I just elevate the elements out of the blue, but I elevate the elements specifically when I say the words, the peace of the Lord be with you. So that's not a sacrifice. Lord, receive this sacrifice, but rather the peace of the Lord be with you. And what I'm showing is that the peace, and it's a, it's a liturgical moment that's absolutely theologically freighted because you remember Jesus as he goes into Holy Week weeping over Jerusalem because why? They know not what makes for their peace. The peace that he has come to give is the peace of himself crucified, his body given, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. So then when we hold that up and say, the peace of the Lord be with you, we're not saying like, hey, happy thoughts, um, you know, be filled with shalom, you know, this kind of uh, superficial spiritualism of our day. Um, but more deeply, the true shalom, the true peace is reconciliation with God through the atoning sacrifice in Christ, made once and for all by him on the cross, but now made present for you to eat and drink for the forgiveness of your sins. So the peace of the Lord be with you. And that, anyway, so I think we're safe from that in our setting, from any confusion. Maybe someone coming out of the, you know, steeped in the Roman Catholic Mass might come and say, well, why do they elevate? There's no, there's no language of sacrifice here. Why do they elevate? And then we could explain to them. So hopefully that's sufficient. And by the way, I don't, I think, I mean, my guess would be among liturgical LCMS churches, most do some form of elevation. Um, why, I, why I tend to elevate it so high is because I just hate the idea of my face behind it. <laughs> I mean, that's it. That's the, I just hate the idea of, <laughs> I am not. I am not the peace of the Lord. Okay, so let's get that thing above my head. So you're looking at the Lord, not at His servant. You know. Um, anyway, that's the rationale for our practice. Great question. We we stumbled upon something here, and maybe it would be good even at this point to just draw out, preclude any confusion. So. Here is, a, here is a distinction that I think is, is fair. Maybe it's even a little bit too broad, but can be helpful. We don't view the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice, as in a verb. We are not sacrificing something. But we do view it as a noun. It is a sacrifice. Why? Because it's the body and blood of Christ. Which body and blood of Christ? The very body and blood of Christ that he sacrificed once and for all on the cross that he now gives us to eat and drink. What am I eating and drinking? The sacrifice of the cross. 
made present for me. So you can see how sacrifice as a noun is true. Sacrifice as a verb is, at best, difficult or problematic. Okay, so we even have that. You may have been taught and kind of has a, I don't know, superficially humorous aspect to it, but you may have heard the bread in particular called the host. And if you're thinking in modern American terms, you might be thinking uh, that some sort of doctrine of the Lord's Supper has, is using the parasite analysis. <laughs> There's a host and the parasite enters the host. That The bread is the host of Christ's presence. And that's not, in fact, what's being said whatsoever. It's kind of hilarious and kind of an abomination all at once. But host is short for hostia, which is Latin for sacrifice. That's why we have that language. So you're receiving the sacrifice. Now that language, hostia or host, sacrifice, again, is neutral. As long as we understand it as a noun that we're receiving, the Christ did the doing, he's the high priest and the sacrifice, he performed that once and for all, and now he's distributing that sacrifice as a noun for us to all receive, uh, you can see why there's no problem with that and why the Lutherans continue to use the language of host, short for hostia. All good? Okay. So it looks like we, yeah, it's about to get spicy in here. 266. Wait a minute, did I do... Yes, did I do 265? I think I did. Yes. Yeah, thank you. 266. What then is one to hold regarding the sacrifice of the papistic mass? Answer. That, and I, there's a typo, that it is the greatest abomination of abominations. Woo! Told you. <laughs> Can you read that again, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now... now um, We'll get into this, but just to give you a shorthand view, what is the New Testament? It is the cup of Jesus. It is the body and blood. Now, if you take the New Testament itself and transform it from a gift that God freely gives you into a work that you perform to God to merit salvation, what have you done? You've turned the gospel into law. You've utterly rejected the gift and turned it into your work. You've spat on the face of God, the gracious giver, and you've said, nope, this is something I'm doing for you. I mean, God is literally like, here's something I did for you. It's the most important and precious thing in the world. And you're like, I did that for you. Here's the sacrifice. So that's why the Lutherans uh, say it's the abomination of abominations, because it subverts and inverts the very New Testament itself. All right, well, I'll let Chemnitz do the heavy lifting now. So, he has said that it's the abomination of abominations. How so? Question 267. On the other hand, many by no means impious things are sung and said in the papistic mass. Right, so... That's why so much of the Mass was retained and why if you do go visit a Roman Catholic church, there's probably a pretty good chance you'll be able to generally track with the liturgy or the liturgical movements um, because there are many good and pious things in it. And uh, to one degree or another, we've retained many of those, just removing those parts that had crept in on account of the sacrifice of the Mass and the other supporting doctrines. 
Chemnitz answer that they sing and read some things from the Psalms and from the writings of the prophets, evangelists, and apostles in the papistic mass. Likewise, that the introit tracks, sequences, and collects that are genuine are used in its performance, and that prefaces, the patrum, sanctus, agnus, or agnus, etc., are sung, is neither impious in itself, nor is that the abomination of the Mass of which we speak. Though also in these parts, the Papists have their abuses, namely, first, that they sing and read those things in the presence of uneducated people in a language not known to them, contrary to the statement of Paul, 1 Corinthians 14, 19, Those of you who are in the men's study, we're coming up on this. So they're speaking in an unintelligible language. They're basically speaking in tongues, and there's no interpreter, and so the people are lost. And of course, that's part and parcel of why they were able to get away with such shenanigans. Second, that they are done in the opinion of opus operatum as though they are worship-pleasing and acceptable to God, though they are done without all feeling of piety and devotion, whereas Scripture teaches to the contrary, Matthew 15 and John 4. So a couple brief comments there before we finish out, and that is uh, piety good, pietism bad. Piety is on display here as good, likewise devotion. So... What is meant by the um, opinion of opus operatum? That is, because it's a meritorious sacrifice in and of itself, it doesn't matter what one's attitude is. Okay? So if you, um, if you contract with someone and you perform services for them and they owe you payment, you might care in the sense of retaining a future client that they're happy with you, but their happiness with you doesn't add or decrease the amount of money that they're giving to you. Money is money, whether, no matter how you feel about it. When I get a parking ticket in my late teen years at the University of Colorado Boulder and did not have two pennies to rub together and there sat my $20 parking ticket that I didn't deserve and I still hold to that to this day... Um, that money still went, I mean, that money was laden with all the hate a young man could muster. <laughs> and, and yet it's still money, right? So the, the principle there is that it's still money or it's still, in this case, a sacrifice, whether one likes it or doesn't like it or cares or doesn't care. All God wants is the sacrifice. All he wants is the money. Give him the money. Give him the sacrifice. And we're all good. It's a transaction that doesn't even require faith because it's meritorious in and of itself. It's a transaction. It's, I do X, you do Y. Done. We're good. doesn't matter how you feel about it or I feel about it. So this idea of opus operatum really plays itself out in egregious ways because you can live however you want to live and just pay for masses to be sacrificed for you and think you're good with God. Now the irony is while you've been studying with uh, Vicar, the minor prophets, this is what is exactly ailing, uh, ailing the people of God 
for the roughly 500 years from Solomon forward until the destruction of the temple is the, they are just saying, hey, we can worship whoever we want to worship. We can do whatever we want to do. We can violate any of the Ten Commandments or any of the other commandments. All we have to do is offer the sacrifices. God can't do anything to us. And that's what they'd have all this false comfort, like we're reading in Jeremiah, like peace, peace, when there is no peace. And oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, when it's just an abomination to him. Because the whole thing has been turned into a transaction as if God can just be bought off. And that's exactly the language used by the, by the papists themselves. So that's what is in view here when Chemnitz writes second, that they are done in the opinion of opus operatum. That's by the working of the work and shorthand for uh, longer Latin phrase there. Or opera, uh, how does it go? Opera operato or something like that. Why well, I can't, I can't remember why I think of this. Oh, I can't think of this right now. Anyway, as though they are worship pleasing and acceptable to God, though they are done without all feeling of piety and devotion, whereas scripture teaches to the contrary. All right, and then finally, ex opere operato. That's the phrase I was looking for. I don't know why I had a brain lapse there. Out of ex opere, the working operato of the work itself. Okay, finally, that they often intermingle with and insert into that action the invocation of the saints, contrary to the express word of God. Okay, so one, they use a tongue without an interpreter, so it benefits no one. Two, the whole thing is done as if it's just a cold, hard transaction and God cares nothing about faith or devotion or piety. Uh, and then three, or finally, you have the invocation of the saints as well, and the intercession of the saints and the merits of the saints and that whole bit of nonsense added in too. So do you have Christ only, Christ alone, Christ the one mediator between God and man? No, you've got many mediators between God and man. It's getting more and more egregious these days with Mary, where they're calling her the co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix, and it's the logical, rational outcome of this business with the saints. Okay, then Chemnitz writes, but the real abomination of the papistic mass consists above all in the canon by which the Lord's Supper is transformed into a propitiatory sacrifice for the sins of the living and the dead. Okay, so what is meant there by canon is essentially the rubrics of the divine service or the mass. By the way, mass isn't a bad word. Mass is a great word. The Lutherans use mass. They call divine service mass. So it's not the mass that's the problem. It's the sacrifice of the mass that's the problem. And so then when that is transformed into a propitiatory sacrifice... So the propitiatory sacrifice was made once and for all. And that's what the scriptures teach us in many places, not only Hebrews, but Paul and Romans and on and on. That it's completed. 
and now we're partakers of it. Instead, this is, acts as though it weren't completed, and now it continues to be propitiatory in the present tense. There's all kinds of sophistry and wrangling to try to get around this. And then you'll notice that it's not only for the living in their system, but also for the dead. So you've got in the view here, in the background, you've got purgatory. You've got the idea that if people are offering a mass for you when you're in purgatory, you might, you might have some of your sentence reduced. The whole thing became a kind of business, you see. Yes, sir. Um, I'm just not familiar with the, the Catholic practice of the sacrifice of the Mass. Could you explain that? Well, you do have some diversity and you have some fine-tuning post-Reformation. So rather than use a straw man, I'll try to use the iron man. And about the most... About the best answer you'll get is that Christ um, offers himself on the cross and the priest in persona Christi, okay, in the person of Christ, offers the body and blood of Christ present tense to God. Okay? So you've got this multiplicity, this derivative multiplicity of the, of the once and for all propitiatory sacrifice of Christ now performed by the priests and the priests only. They're the only ones authorized to do this. They're the only ones that can do this. And by the indelible character bestowed upon them in the rite of ordination, which they understand differently. They actually, priests become, I mean, they don't use this language, but they actually become something superhuman, and their words can now affect the sacrament, the sacramental presence, and they, and they alone can offer uh, the, the sacrifice to God. They'll call it an unbloody propitiation because it's like they want to be clear, uh, steer clear of like, are we, so are we crucifying Jesus again? No, we're not crucifying him again, but we are offering what was crucified in a present tense propitiation for the sins of the people gathered here, or as the case may be, for the sins of the person who paid for the Mass. Where, I mean, where this, it's hard to even imagine, but this was, this was actually a thing. That there were priests, and um, in, in some cases even monasteries, monks would be transformed from religious into priests. They'd be given ordination. And their job would be to get up and from sunrise or before, sundown and before, do nothing but mass after mass after mass after mass all bought and paid for, sponsored by some. So it was just this whole business of, okay, here's all the money. Now all you're going to do is sacrifice the masses. Where's the person to receive the body and blood of Christ? Nowhere. They're gone. They just paid for the mass. They don't even have to be present, you see. They can be off gout. So if you were a wealthy person, you would just pay for a single mass every day to be said for you. You'd go out and live your life and trust that um, that was your moral payment for all your... So it turns the whole thing into a business transaction and completely devoid of faith, completely devoid of Christianity. That It's important to see that because that's the fruit that comes from the tree. And the tree is this idea that we are taking the body and blood of Christ and offering them to God. When the words of Christ are very clear that God is giving, taking the body and blood of Christ and offering them to us. 
not as a sacrifice, but as a sacrament. All right, I'm seeing a furrowed brow or two. There's, um, if you have questions, I'm happy to do the best I can to clarify. I know it's kind of moving fast, especially if you're unfamiliar with Roman Catholicism. And it's really, it's really at this point, papism. Because it's the papacy that really invents and promotes this. So we were talking about parasites <laughs> a few moments ago. And the papistic doctrine is a parasitic doctrine. It's a, the, the pope and the papacy is a parasite within the Western church. And all the doctrines that stem from the papacy are all the most abominable and egregious. And so much of the Reformation, the Reformation is a little bit like a diamond. It can be viewed validly from all kinds of different angles or facets. But it can also be viewed as the angle and the facet of this is once we realized what the Pope and the papacy was, it's get rid of the parasite. Restoring the church is to boot the papacy and magisterium and have them replaced with the word of God and have their false doctrines corrected. Okay, yes. I'm just glancing at Hebrews 10, and it's such a rebuttal of what happens in the Roman Catholic Church. It's, it's just to the issue. It talks about all the sacrifices that we, and that Christ oh, yeah. came and once and for all did the sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. There's a kind of Judaizing element to it because as, as Hebrews is talking about the sacrifices that are ongoing in the temple, it's not destroyed yet in 70, he's comparing these, the insufficiency of these sacrifices that have to continually be done to the one sacrifice that is done. Um, the Judaizing comes in when the papacy starts to view, hey, they were offer- the priests of the Old Testament were offering stuff, now we're going to offer stuff, but the thing we're offering is the one good thing, so see, this is the culmination, culmination and climax of it all. I mean, that's the rationale they use. But if you extend this out further, I don't know, maybe this is boring. I'll try to make it fast. If you extend this out further, this is why if you read the Roman Catholic Catechism, about the only way you can't be saved is to be a Lutheran. Because everybody else sacrifices meritoriously, including pagans. So the Rome, this is why Rome's so friendly to paganism and pagan sacrifice, and why very often when they go in, um, they don't get rid of it. They just put Jesus up along with all the paganism, or they say, oh, that... that female pagan apparition, let's call her a manifestation of Mary. And they just roll with it. Why? Because in their theology, sacrifice is normal, and, uh, a, and propitiating sacrifice is normal. It's what all people are trying to do. Christianity just says we have the right sacrifice, Christ. So once you kind of see and understand that frame and that worldview, you can see why they're so positive towards pagans and so negative to Lutherans. Pagans are sacrificing, doing everything they can to merit the forgiveness of sins. They just don't have the right ingredient. They just don't have Christ. But they're otherwise just like us. But those Lutherans stand in complete rejection of us because they say Christ is the one who did the sacrifice, and that sacrifice is done. 
It is finished. It is completed. He and he alone is the meter between God and man. And now we bestow the gifts, the treasures that he has won for us in his conquest and offers to us through the sacrifice that he made once and for all. And they can't stand that because you're saying, they're saying, so what? There's no more meritorious sacrifice? And we're saying, that's right. And we're the only ones saying, that's right. And so they hate us and view us worse than pagans. Now, hopefully that gives you some insight. I don't know, the way the papacy is shaped out, it's like, I don't know who I'd rather have as an enemy than the Pope. Pretty safe enemy. <laughs> I'll bank on that. Lord, Lord, you go up to heaven, part of your judgment in this fictitious scenario is, okay, who are your enemies? Well, the Pope hates me. <laughs> I put that right on the front of my resume. It'd be great. I just have to say, I want to verify what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> My sister went to an instruction class in the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And it came out that the priest said, oh yeah, the people, the pagans in wherever, India or whatever, if they offer sacrifices, even though they don't see clearly what the gospel is, it can, they can be saved. Mm-hmm. He actually said this. Yeah, 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 exactly. So all of this is an outcropping of the sacrifice of the mass and the abomination of abominations. So it's important for you to see, like, because I know that that language, I mean, it even hits me. It's just like, whoa, that's mean um, to call their sacrament the abomination of abominations. It is when you look at it. And what further demonstrates that is what doctrines have developed out of that. Because that's when you just go, oh, my gosh. It's absolutely egregious, and it's the full embrace of paganism. It's the full reinstantiation of Israel when she's got the Baals and Ashtoreths all around. I mean, if we just open our eyes, stop being so naive and gullible, and open your eyes to Roman Catholic worship and piety, and you will see paganism all around, done in the name of God, just like the golden calf. And you will find Ashtoreths and Baals all around their sanctuaries and all around their practices. Their app, the so-called apparitions of Mary, um, the Virgin de Guadalupe and um, Fatima and other such. Look into them if you want. You will be absolutely and objectively convinced it's demonic activity. It is not Mary appearing and contradicting the Bible. It is not things that Mary from the Bible would be saying and doing. These are demonic manifestations who also require things in addition to what Christ himself requires and in addition to what is written in the apostolic scriptures. So it's really, it's really I mean, I don't, like, I don't like to be mean. I don't like to be polemic. I know that there are many good, faithful Christians in the Roman Catholic Communion under the parasite of the papacy, I will see them in heaven, we will rejoice together. But the parasite that has infected that church, the Western church, and its teachings are just manifestly demonic. Even the uh, scriptures say, what is, what is a, a, a teaching of demons? The forbidding of marriage. What do you have to do in order to be part of the papistic priesthood? Reject marriage. It's wild. They claim Peter is the first pope. And Peter, we know, had a mother-in-law, which means he had a wife. 
Nobody gets a mother-in-law without a wife. That's, that's not in the cards. So the first pope was married. And popes were married. Uh, for, and now it's forbidden. And the apostolic scriptures can identify this very practice as a teaching of demons. And, and if we're just going to blink our eyes and be like, oh, well, I'm sure that doesn't apply... We have no one to blame but ourselves for our own gullibility. And when you're charitable to wickedness, it's not a virtue. You have to say things as they are. Okay, so a long, uh, a long discourse there. But this is, um, this is reason to be Lutheran. Lord, to whom shall we go? This may be a little bit off subject, but uh, if we're going to answer this later, you can, you can not answer it. But... Uh, I'm curious, coming to the communion rail, let's say I'm visiting at a LCMS church, another location, and I'm aware that there's, uh, you know, either a pagan or a heretic participating in the uh, the communion. Um, Well, I guess the general question is, is there a time that I should not partake of the body and blood of Christ? in a proper way when I know that even in an LCMS closed communion situation um, could you just comment on that quickly? Yeah, it's, it's hard to speak in generalities because there's going to be you know, a slightly modified answer depending upon the concrete and specific circumstances but right, so you said visiting a congregation an LCMS congregation whom you're in fellowship with and they're at that congregation, they are going to commune someone who is openly and impenitently heretical mm-hmm. or whatever else. Yeah. Uh, my personal practice and the practice I would advise is to not commune. Communion, and I know that that doesn't solve it. I'm just talking about the concrete, what do you do that Sunday morning when you discover we sometimes get wrapped around the axle because we love the Lord's Supper. We want to have the Lord's Supper. We're looking forward to the Lord's Supper. But we also have to say, wait a minute, the Lord's Supper isn't absolutely 100% life or death necessary. And if something's wrong or something's amiss, I may actually be worshiping the Lord more truly in my heart to say, I'm not participating in that. So my rule of thumb is anywhere there's any doubt introduced into the supper, the words of institution are intentionally changed or misused or sung by the children or whatever weird thing this generation has dreamt up. Uh, I'm just going to be like, this is weird, I'm out. There's nothing that requires me to commune. I'm going to demonstrate my piety this Sunday by being out. I'm not going to do it. I, I can't be certain. And the whole point of the Lord's Supper is to be certain. So, yeah, please. This is even if the pastor is, you know, an ordained LCMS pastor who's legitimately doing it properly. I'm, I'm saying there's one of those attending would be pagan or heretics. Um, now, in attendance is one thing, communing is another. So if the pagan or the heretic is communing and the pastor doesn't know any better, right. okay, if the, well, is the pastor aware of the heresy? Oh, and the, I, okay, Because then he's derelict in his duty, and that's all the more reason to not commune and to, and to maybe have a conversation with him or have a conversation with your pastor so your okay. pastor can 
do what he can do. Yeah. Um, okay, that clarifies it. Okay, okay, you. yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Yeah, we have to, I mean, it's like if I can't bring the shenanigans to an end, I'm at least not going to participate in it, by and large. Um, there are some circumstances in which even if something wasn't perfectly right, um, you might still, you might put up with an abuse for a time or put up with an abuse occasionally. Um, and so that's, I understand these are things on the margin, but that's, I mean, that's why we have pastors to help you think through things that are on the margin and things that are in the gray. And so even though I've said what I've said, there may be exceptions to that from time to time. It's, it's part of why God gives us living, breathing pastors to help us walk through difficult circumstances as opposed to just, you know, a phone book worth of bylaws that's, uh, so you can look up your specific situation in about four hours and, and get your answer. Yes, sir. So what if what pollutes that to Barry's question, if it's a pastor in an LCMS church who's knowingly communing someone who is in unrepentant sin or heresy or whatever, yeah. it's almost as if you were to go to like an ELCA church and commune because they openly mm-hmm. uh right. I mean that's yeah. the same kind of pollution, is it not? Yeah. I mean I you might just wanna you don't wanna be one with that. Exactly. And if I'm just visiting I don't have any, I mean, I would, just, I would just not. If I was a member and I became aware of this, I might continue to commune for a time while I addressed it with a pastor. Um, sometimes it's the case that we visit other churches for important events like baptisms or confirmations or first communions or whatever the case may be. In, in those particular circumstances, I, I tend to have a little bit of a softer view, just depending on... It, there it really depends on like what testimony or what witness are you bearing and to whom, and those questions enter in. And there are some circumstances where my pastoral advice would be to put up with it, commune, receive the body and blood of Christ, have a clear conscience, and write on. You know, just move, move on. Um, so I feel the same way about you know situations where I haven't wanted to commune even at a pastor's, yeah, because I couldn't tell if they used the words of institution or not. <laughs> it's like one of these moments where you just feel like you're walking on Mars. Like, will somebody wake me up from this dream? So you didn't use the words of institution. Is this the supper or not? Now, for my part, it's just like, I'm not going to put up with this nonsense. I'll, I can wait three days till Sunday where I can have the supper. But I'm not going to judge my brother who goes to that and who goes to that. Think you know I, He would probably agree with me that it's not the best, but he's going to go to that because in his heart, in his mind, it's, it, it's still worth it. It's still sure and certain. So that's what I mean by... I, I might have my preference and my way, and I might even think that my brother is wrong, but I'm not going to judge him. I'm not going to enter into judgment. I'm not going to chastise him or say, does that make sense? So, so I'm not, yeah, I think that's sufficient. I think I'm getting a little fatigued. Okay, good question. The practical questions are great questions. 
Let's see if we can just knock out 268 then. I think that's the next one. But nearly all the fathers call the action of the Lord's Supper a sacrifice. And that's true. The true use of the Supper, and that which was instituted by Christ himself, is that it be celebrated in memory or commemoration of the only propitiatory sacrifice, which Christ accomplished once on the cross, that is, in thanksgiving and praise of the Lord's death. And that we use it worthily in true faith, with penitent heart, and fruits of love that follow. And for this very thing, ardent prayer is necessary. Scripture calls all these things spiritual offerings or spiritual sacrifices. And there's a whole slew of Scripture references. And Paul calls the ministry of the gospel, to which also the act of the Lord's Supper belongs, a spiritual sacrifice. And in that sense and respect, the fathers well call the act of the Lord's Supper a sacrifice. Yeah, this is kind of a Roman Catholic apologetics or polemic trap. They'll say, to become acquainted with the church fathers is to cease to be Protestant. Well, to one degree or another, I'm pretty acquainted with them, and I'm still a Lutheran. I'm not sure if I'd say I'm a Protestant, but (laughs) I am a Lutheran. No problem. So when you run into the church fathers and they're talking about things as a sacrifice, you really uh, talking about the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice, you really need to pay attention to how they're using it and what ways and in what sense they're using it. Um, because we, as we've already talked about, there's a sense in which we receive it as a noun. It is a sacrifice. And it is a propitiatory sacrifice that we receive as a noun. It is also a sacrifice that Christ made. So it is a sacrifice as a verb if we're considering him doing the doing. Okay? Chemnitz's point here is that the entirety of our worship is permeated. In the Old Testament, you have this uh, division of sacrifices. There are propitiatory sacrifices that, um, through which God grants forgiveness of sins. You can think of Yom Kippur and the blood of the lamb being brought into the holiest of holies once a year and poured out on the hillisteria and the mercy seat of the ark. That's a propitiatory sacrifice. Through it, God grants forgiveness of sins. Then you can think of thanksgiving sacrifices, like when they sacrifice uh, uh, grains or uh, wine or oil or whatever else the case may be. These are sacrifices of thanksgiving. So propitiatory or um, thanksgiving is a major division uh, in the Old Testament sacrifices. So that continues in the New Testament as well. It's just that Christ is the one propitiatory sacrifice. And then all Christians' works and duties that do in fact flow from a new heart, flow from the Holy Spirit within us, are properly speaking sacrifices of thanksgiving. They're not propitiatory sacrifice. But that, that, so it's kind of a weird way to think, but it's, it's also a really helpful and really true way to think. The pastor, when he's administering the sacraments, is sacrificing thanksgiving because he's doing his duty and thanksgiving for what... When the pastor preaches, he's sacrificing because he's doing his duty of thanksgiving for what the Lord has... for the propitiatory sacrifice that the Lord has worked. When the people res- confess the creed 
or when the people receive the body and blood of Christ with faith in their hearts. This is all a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's an outflowing from the one propitiatory sacrifice made by Christ. In that sense, anything we Christians do as Christian qua Christian or Christian per se is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So you can see then that in this sense, the whole divine service, you can kind of analyze along these lines that anything that comes from God to us, we could say is propitiatory sacrifice and gift. That's usually been the language of sacrament. And then anything we return to God, we love because he first loved us. Anything we return to God is sacrifice of thanksgiving. So then, just very broadly, all of the divine service can be understood and analyzed along the terms of um, sacrament or sacrifice. Sacramentum, sacrificium, that division. Um, and the sacrificium, or the sacrifices of thanksgiving, interpenetrate everything. I mean, right down to the bread and wine that we use are purchased from the church budget that you sacrificed via thanksgiving and put money into the plates so we can have bread and wine. So the two are wed together, even though distinct. The propitiatory sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifices of thanksgiving that we do in response. And then even broadening it out, it's, that's all of life. I mean, how did you get the money by your sacrifices of thanksgiving and working? And how did you, and, you know, so on. So all your vocations become um, living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12. This sounds very much like the receptive piety concept that uh, Kleinig talks about. Is this, mm, yeah. is his framework when he talks about receptive piety something that the church fathers have always thought of with regard to this it's it's a reciprocal we receive and then give back is that something new or where does that fit into our theology mm, it's always it's always a both and but the emphasis falls on a different syllable depending upon the context and so that's where Kleinig's emphasis on the passivity doesn't deny the activity, but it emphasizes the passivity because we live in a culture where Christianity is so focused or tends to be so focused on what you do for God. Um, I, I, again, I mean, just think, think of like parachuting out of the Lutheran church into an evangelical church, and you're going to get sermons like 40 Steps to a Better You and 10 Steps How to Eat the Daniel Diet and 14 steps on how to balance your budget in a Christian way, and it's just you, 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 what you do, etc. And the whole focus becomes on you. So given that that tends to be our cultural milieu, Kleinig and other Lutherans like to emphasize the receptivity, that God is doing the doing, and we are receiving that and then responding. So, and that's all fine. I mean, objectively, that really is the, the emphasis on the right syllable is... Uh, Christ doing the doing and us then thanking and praising. We love because he first loved us. But at various times and places too, the church fathers will, will have a heavier emphasis on the sacrifices and on the living. That's because the culture around them is lawless. That's where you're starting to already hear Lutherans speaking in a different way with more emphasis on how we exist and live concretely as Christians in a lawless culture. In that respect, our culture has more in common with the first century and 
first five century Christians, let's say, than it does with in Luther's day or the time of the Reformation or quote-unquote Christian America in which Lutherans have lived and moved and had our being because these are largely not lawless places but places that tend toward legalisms of various stripes. There, it's gospel time. But when you live in a lawless culture where everything is free and there's never any consequence and everything is good, the church has always and ever said it's time to shine like lights in the darkness, like a city set up on a hill. It's time to be salt in a world filled with dirt and manure, to be distinct. And so more and more emphasis is being put, and, I, and I'm all for it. I think it needs to continue to be put um, on living life as a Christian in distinction to the world and drawing people to your example. So that would be the activity. But all you see is, as the context changes, faithful Christians focus on the passivity, the receptivity, or the activity, and what it means to live and be a Christian. Make some sense? No. I mean, one thing we just absolutely can't do is demonize either of those. Oh, we're way over time. I was ready to go, too. I had a little sermon all <laughs> set in my mind. Don't forget it. <laughs> I figure if it's worth anything, the Holy Spirit will bring it back to my mind. Not worried about that. Okay. Uh, the Lord be with you.